Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jettikin. Hey. What's up? What's up, Des? You're holding your big fat baby. I have Melon in my lap. I'm holding him like a baby. Um, he's, yeah, he's sick. He Well, he's not sick, but he's pretending to be sick. Oh, he's pretending. <laughs> I think he is. He's looking at me with like, shut up, bitch. Like, <laughs> like he's like looking at me, don't say anything. He's, he's not sick. He did go to the vet for a checkup this week. But he's got a sniffle or something. It's no? not... It's not like a sniffle. It's because he has to take eardrops right now. Okay. I'm not going to get into this. You don't have to get into Look, it. I, Something's going on. Melon's fine. He's not sick. Okay. He's fine. <laughs> it wasn't a judgment. I, I just don't want people worrying about oh, him. Oh, no, no. Because no. He's nothing's, not sick. nothing's wrong with him. He did just go for a checkup, though. Okay. Um, I guess I'll do Patreon since yeah. your hands are full. Yeah. Um, we have a Patreon. That's where you can become a patron. <laughs> what do you do over there? We've got lots of additional content that you can only find on patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. We also have ad-free episodes. So if you don't like those ads that are always louder than the rest of the show, Ooh. I'm just saying no, there's was, an option for you. That was good shade. <laughs> we don't put the ads in. We don't freaking know. Uh, you can get the ads, um, ad-free episodes there. We have an after show. We have a movie club. There's lots of stuff and there's lots of options for you. I Different saw, price levels. I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just winging it. <laughs> anyway, I just saw recently that we have like over 350 episodes up on Patreon. And you get access to all of that immediately. Immediately when you so sign up. you're going to have a lot of fun with that. Patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. And you get a shout out. And you get a shout out. If you don't want a shout out, I don't know, let us know. But so far, no one well, said that. no one's ever done that before. But sure. <laughs> if you need a little extra attention, don't give me a shout out. We started doing shout outs on day one and we just haven't stopped. No. So this week, we're giving shout outs to Kirsten, uh, Dina, Diana, Emily, Lynn, Meredith, Kelsey, uh, Holly, Laura, Catherine, Elena, Melanie, Jane, um, Samantha, Scott, Lee, Lauren, JC, Susan, Joseph, and Kayla. Thank you all. Thanks, guys. Okay, let me put my phone down. <laughs> now to my episode. So I've been wanting to do this for a while. The book that I'm using for the source is very chaotic and that's what's always stopped me because it's all over the place and I usually I'm like, ah, I can't deal with this right now. But I finally had the time. I read this book a long time ago. It's called You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again. It is a classic of the genre. Um, it's a Hollywood tell-all that gives you an inside peek into not only like 
the production of movies, but the whole world of being like in or out. Um, and this one has extensive 70s and 80s drug use as well. Fun. She goes after a lot of big names that you'll all recognize. One unnamed producer described the book when it came out as the longest suicide note in history. Mm. She really details, she really burns a lot of bridges in this book. And who is she? Her name is Julia Phillips. She is the writer and she's quite a character. She is definitely or was definitely a woman in a man's world, which gives this whole deal a very unique point of view. The remarkable thing about it for me as well is the fact that she's such this huge character and I had never heard of her until this book came out, despite the fact that she's very successful. She produced movies that we all know about, so that's just kind of wild. And it gives you an idea of how all of these people who are behind the scenes um, and that we rarely see but are very powerful are just as interesting as the stars and sometimes more so. Yeah, so um, many people asked when this book came out how she could remember so much because she was drugged out all the time. And she said, my answer to that is simple. I came from a really smart family. <laughs> my brain has been trained since birth. I went to Mount Hollyhock College. I did drugs that intensify, not numb. I mean, I did coke and amphetamines and my life was a movie. I was amongst larger than life characters who were spouting very good lines I didn't address myself to what I didn't remember. See, that's the problem with doing uppers. (laughs) As a former upper user myself, you unfortunately remember it. Yeah. So that's good in this case. In my case, not so fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she has some fucked up things too, for sure. But yeah, it's definitely um, a double-edged sword, I guess. So um, this book came out in 1991. It's pretty much my only source. I did try to find other things, but this book is like not even on Kindle. What? Isn't that crazy? I had to find like a PDF of it because I couldn't get the book in time. Um, but like, isn't that shocking? Because it's is. like, it was such a big book and it's it's weird what gets Kindled and what doesn't. Yeah. But I thought for sure this one would be. Um, so obviously this book was a huge bestseller. It was like a cultural phenomenon. Julia was on like, Every talk show, Donahue, whatever, (laughs) you you name it. She was like, she was everywhere when this book came out. And probably for a while afterwards, she was like the go-to source for like Hollywood. um, When they wanted someone who would tear things to shreds, they would go to Julia. Okay, so let's get to her life. Julia Phillips was born Julia Miller in 1944 to Tanya and Adolf Miller. They were a Polish-Jewish family living in the village before they moved to Brooklyn when Julia was four. Her father worked on the Manhattan Project, and her mother was a stay-at-home mom and a wannabe writer, and she never really uh, was successful at it. Julia's Julia's mother was in misery living in Brooklyn. She fucking hated it because they had quite a little lifestyle going when they were in uh, the village. They hung out with like Betty Comden and Adolph Green, like So they were running in those kind of more artsy, fun circles, but Brooklyn, nope. Uh, It was here that Julia's mother really started um, suffering or her, her, she had some kind of undiagnosed mental illness. I don't know. It was never diagnosed, so we don't really know what it was, but it really came out in full force while they were in Brooklyn. Uh, She would 
be highly self-medicated for most of Julia's life. And she had wild mood swings, including long bouts of depression, where young Julia would just see her mom sobbing on the bed or on the sofa for seemingly no reason. When the father finally earns more money, the family leave Brooklyn, which they all hated, and move to Great Neck on Long Island. And there they enjoy a more upscale lifestyle. Julia becomes really popular. She has a nice little social life going. And she's just like going to rock and roll shows. She's trying marijuana for the first time. And she starts giving and getting head. Nice. <laughs> so <laughs> things are going great in Great Neck. The mom actually great gets... Neck. <laughs> great Neck, baby. <laughs> Have it, let me get some bobbin on my head. <laughs> um, so that's how that name of that town came, yeah, came to be, duh. very famously. So the mom kind of gets out of her depression because she really throws herself into politics, going door to door for Adlai Stevenson, who had no chance of beating the popular president, Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, so she kind of throws herself into this lost cause and obviously ends up with a broken heart. And just as they're kind of settling into Great Neck, the, dot, the dad gets a job that pays way more money, but the only problem is it's in Milwaukee. Fuck. So these are obviously, especially the mom is a snobby Easterner who had no plans to ever even visit the Midwest, much less live there. But they all agree to move and decide to be supportive of the dad's new job. Now, Julia has a cat. She has an orange big bald tomcat who is unneutered <laughs> and his name is Caesar. So they call him Julia's Caesar. Oh, he actually a- attacks her <laughs> before they fly to Milwaukee <laughs> and she gets an, a huge infection that has to be treated with penicillin. Like her hand blows up. Damn. Obviously she still loves this cat because she travels with him on the plane and she's in she's in real pain with this injury, so it's like throbbing the whole plane ride. And her cat Caesar glares at her the whole way while howling. <laughs> Sounds like Melon. I know. I was like, I, I was like, I can appreciate someone who has a cat like this and still loves it of with course. all of their hearts. I mean, of that's, that's that's cat, being a cat lover. That's a cat ownership experience. So once she's in Milwaukee, Julia finds it easy to make friends again. She's actually surprised at how these kids are kind of even more wild than the ones in Great Neck. They're drinking a ton, and they're not just giving head. They're fucking. Mm. They also shoplift, which she is like outraged because she's like, that's a Shonda in Great Neck. (laughs) If you get caught shoplifting, (laughs) your life is over. But these kids don't care. There are other aspects, though, that are more difficult. She feels very out of place being a short Jewish girl surrounded by all these tall Norwegian-looking blonde uh, girls. She even experiences her first brush with anti-Semitism when a guy she's hanging out with complains about his Jewish-looking nose and then turns to Julia and says, sorry. Oh, God. She clips back, what are you apologizing to me for? You're the one with the Jewish nose. (laughs) So Julia has a sassy personality. She comes down with hepatitis in high school that might have been related to mono. It's a little unclear to me and is obviously home for weeks with this illness. And she gets a really detailed um, look into her mom's life at this point. She describes Milwaukee as her mother's Waterloo, saying she is there she is faced with her most powerful enemy, herself. Her mom's day basically consists of smoking camels, 
eating cheese and chocolate. That sounds pretty good. Mm. Uh, And a lot of uh, prescription drugs. She's a pill popper. Mama's a pill popper. She also stays in her bathroom most of the day. And all of her internal dissatisfaction at this point begins to be projected onto Julia. She really is not kind to her daughter. She berates her daily. And one of these arguments leads to Julia smacking her mother hard in the face uh, at some point. The dad is there and he sees this and he smacks Julia hard in the face. And this is not a family that typically had this kind of physical uh, violence. Everyone is very upset by this incident. They all apologize and promise to move on. But this is a turning point for Julia as far as her family. She is starting to disconnect from them a bit. She eventually gets out of the house to attend Mount Hollyhock College, which is a liberal arts women's college in Massachusetts. And it's there that she falls in love with literature and writing. This creates more strife with the mother because she has never fulfilled her promise as a writer And she treats Julia like a possession, taking credit for her writing ability, saying it takes two generations to create a a writer, meaning her failure has sort of laid the foundation for Julia's success and giving her kind of a martyr role. She also becomes obsessed with Julia's weight. She tells Julia that she's only seen her dad cry twice, once when his mother died and once when Julia got off the plane from college 25 pounds heavier. Fuck. I know. Julia agrees to go on diet pills that will be supplied by her mother. In 1964, Julia is filling in for another student to do dorm room chores when two tall and tanned guys walk in looking for a friend of hers. One of these guys is Michael Phillips. The boys both go to neighboring school Amherst. Even though Michael initially seems interested in her friend Chris, he and Julia soon began a hot and heavy affair, but things cool down when Julia begins to pressure him to get married, which she does pretty soon because some of her friends are already getting married. It's like the 60s. -hmm. So she goes home after graduating. Her mom is in the New York Times, you know, daily circling jobs for Julia in the publishing world. And she circles one day a job that is at McCall's magazine, and Julia gets her first gig at McCall's. She eventually moves to New York City, and she tries to date, but she's still hung up on Michael. Then, according to her, eight months, 17 days, and three hours since they last spoke, Michael calls Julia. He says he also can't stop thinking about her. They rekindle things and marry the following summer. Now, Julia eventually moves over to Ladies Home Journal and quickly moves up. Meanwhile, Michael is finishing up law law school. He's also dabbling on Wall Street and makes a ton of money investing in a birth control pill company. Julia is bored in the lady magazine world and decides to apply to be a story editor for a guy at Paramount Pictures. She lands the gig, even though she has no experience in filmmaking, she lands the gig because Her magazine experience means she is six months ahead of everyone as far as potential story ideas go. This is like funny to me because it's like now there's no such thing as this lead time. No. Like you would be publishing things instantly. Yes. And then it was just like that was like a coup for them because she knew all these things that were coming out that hadn't been published yet. Right. So Michael gets called into the reserve army due to the Vietnam War 
And Julia began spending more and more time with her boss. His name is Marty. Uh, She's sort of his date for industry parties. And she quickly learns that the only thing lower on the rung than women in Hollywood are writers, which is sort of this, (laughs) becomes this thing for her. She always really wants to treat the writers well. Eventually, um, they get a job tossed from Paramount and start working for, for an independent film company. And then Julia gets fired from that as well when Marty, I guess, just doesn't have money to keep her on. Luckily, Michael's out of the reserves and he's working now for an investment banker called Alan Allen. Alan <laughs> Allen. He's got a lot of Allens in his name. But Julia doesn't want to live off her husband. She wants to work. She's out of work three months when she meets uh, David Beagleman. Now, he at the time is a big agent. He works at an agency called CMA that doesn't exist anymore. But we'll probably do a story on him sometime because he's the one who embezzled all this money from Columbia Pictures in like the early 80s, I think. Uh, And, you know, it's a crazy story. So she gets hired by him to find projects for his biggest clients, which include Paul Newman, Steve McQueen, Liza Minnelli, and Barbara Streisand. When Beagleman takes Julia to a meeting with Barbara, it's literally a dream (laughs) dream come true for her. Uh, Julia has had a nice run of landing big projects for his clients. And one of the biggest things she gets is for Barbara. She options this uh, story called Yentl the Yeshiva Boy. No way. Yeah. So she gets that project for Barbara. And as we all know, this becomes a passion project for her and isn't produced in for like over 15 years, whatever, for a long time. It's like in the 80s when it finally gets made. Didn't she win an Oscar for Yentl? Mm, I don't know. No. Maybe for a song or something. But she Yentl's a big deal. Yentl is a huge deal. Uh, and like I said, this is Barbara's passion project yeah. uh, for sure. Um, so yeah, that, that gets started back in the 60s, which is wild. Her next big project is... Um, Barbara asking her to find a co-star for The Way We Were. Wow. She immediately reaches out to Robert Redford, and he is dismissive of this. He's like, we're from different generations of Hollywood. I don't see me and her in a movie together. And she's like, look, you've only seen Funny Girl probably, which is a more old school Hollywood type movie. She's done a lot of things since then. He watches Alan the Pussycat. Then he calls her. And he's like, I still don't see me and Barbara Strident in a movie. Strident? Yeah, because he thinks her performance is annoying and over (gasps) the top in this movie. Robert. Yeah. In the course of these negotiations with Robert, Julia meets producer Tony Bell, who is trying to package Redford with director George Roy Hill in a movie about barnstorming. This will eventually lead to a professional relationship that will change Julia's life forever. I guess we could take a break here. Okay. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I've had a really stressful year with work and family stuff, and I know I'm not alone when I say I tend to push that stress down in order to get what I need done, done, and that only makes things worse. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. In the past, therapy has helped me navigate many situations from helping me to set boundaries to just becoming the best version of myself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I love that it's entirely online, so it's convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash HCS today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash HCS. So one day, Tony Bill shows up to Julia's office with a tape of a writer named David Ward laying out the beats for his film idea with the working title, The Sting. Tony thinks it would be perfect for Paul Newman, but Julia's unsure about taking it to him, and she asks what else David has written. He just has one other screenplay called Steelyard Blues, and it's something he wrote in college. At some point, though, Julia has a light bulb go off, and she asks Tony if she and him and Michael should option the scripts themselves. This is something they've been talking about doing for a while. And they go ahead and pick up the options for both scripts for just $3,500. CMA, the agency where she's working, thinks it's just the boys going into business together, and they have no idea Julia is planning on striking out on her own as a producer. So first up is Stillyard Blues. This cast is set. It has Donald Sutherland, Peter Boyle, and Jane Fonda. And Jane and Donald are in the midst of an affair when this movie uh, starts. They started this affair on the set of Clute. This ended Donald's second marriage, and he claimed she made all the moves and he couldn't help it. <laughs> when she asked him to come up to his room, he said yes, because she had at the time the most beautiful breast in the world. That's what he said? Yeah. 
No, that's what I say. No, I'm just kidding. It's I, Jane Fonda. It's Jane Fonda. So, yeah, this obviously will create some issues on set. Now, once the financing is secured, the movie's a go. Julia and Michael leave for the West Coast. Michael quits his investment banking gig at Allen Allen. <laughs> Julia takes a leave of absence of C- from CMA. She's not quite ready to leave it. But she does end up getting fired when they find out what she's doing. Her mom is now furious, uh, dismissively calling her a producer's wife, even though she's a part of it. Uh, Julia is free to be an out and open producer on the film now, and she really throws herself into it. Um, The couple also really throw themselves into the Hollywood lifestyle. They take their fee from Steel Yard Blues and sign a two-year lease for an oceanfront property in Troncus, which is in Malibu. Margot Kidder and Jennifer Salt throw them a welcome to Malibu party at their oceanfront home, and they're really in this new tight-knit, rich Malibu community. That's its own thing in Hollywood. Yes. The Malibu like commune or whatever. It's a whole other world over there. Yeah. So Michael and Julia also blow their fee on throwing their own soirees weekly, inviting a who's who of Hollywood, including like film stars, Liza Minnelli, Robert Redford, the up-and-coming directors, Coppola, Scorsese, Brian De Palma, and the beach community people like Joan Didion and her husband, John Gregory Dunn. In the book, Julia says, someone at a party once asked her, I wonder what it's like to be the 400th greatest living writer married to the greatest. (laughs) Such a mean thing, like the 400th. Now, these parties are very booze and drug-filled, obviously. And one of the things they do when they get drunk is play that party game, The Killer. Do oh, you know that game yeah. where you, like, wink yeah. and, like, you can't get caught winking? Wait, what's the one that I fucking hated as a kid where you, like, scratch someone's hand? Do you know what I'm I talking know. about? That where it's sounds like awful. You go around shaking people's hands and then whoever's... Oh. If someone's a killer, they, like... Here, that would scare hand. me. Give me your hand. <laughs> they go like, okay, I know what that that, that I thought I'm... meant someone wanted to fuck you. No. <laughs> well, I was playing the wrong game. <laughs> no, but I always hated that game because that sensation of someone that sensation doing sucks. That, it's so gross. It makes me get a chill. Me too. One person that, that Julia... was like the most intimate thing we've ever done. <laughs> really, I know. It's like that we can never be the same. Yeah. <laughs> Remember the time? That's when it all changed. (laughs) One person Julia doesn't hit it off with is Blythe Danner. She describes Blythe as the type of woman who is like, oh, you big strong man, could you do this for me? I don't know how. (laughs) (laughs) So while so far things seem like very on the rise for the Phillipses, some stuff comes crashing down to earth when they see the dailies for Steelyard Blues. The movie is static. The comedy lands with a thud. The first screening for execs is a disaster. They eventually override director Alan Meyerson's cut. The new cut is improved, and that leads them to get some financing to film some more scenes in order to salvage the film, which is now not only releasable, but actually pretty good in their opinion. One thing that is not salvageable is Jane Fonda's performance, which she basically phones in due to the implosion of her affair with um, Donald Sutherland. She's so upset after watching a preview of the film that she stumbles leaving the screening and breaks her ankle <gasps> and drops her panna cotta. <laughs> Sorry. That's a deep That's cut. That's a deep cut. Uh, Julia said the problem with phoning in your performance is that one day you have to look at it. 
So now the movie is being distributed by Warner Brothers, and it is through this arrangement that Julia meets our old friend, Don Simpson. He is assigned to work with them on the film's release. At their first meeting, Don exclaims that he's a triple Scorpio. (laughs) Dude, that's too much. That's too much. That is too much. And that explains a lot. That does explain a lot. Jesus. So Julia says she's kind of attracted to him because he looks like a sexist pig caveman. So you don't forget. You always know what you're going to expect. <laughs> she's kind of like this visual cue that's accurate. Um, at all of their meetings, Julia is seen as Don's secretary when they go to these meetings. And they never correct it, but obviously it's very uh, frustrating for her. Michael and T- Tony have moved on to pre-production on The Sting, and Julia's still wrapping up Steel Yard Blues. She's instrumental in landing Robert Redford, who is now filming The Way We Were, uh, for The Sting. Uh, so he's so grateful he invites her to the set in Malibu while they're um, filming the last scenes of The Way We Were, those final scenes. And he proudly introduces Julia as his next producer. And Julia's like, that's my star. So it's like this real Hollywood um, experience for her. Don is really impressed with all of this stuff with Julia. This is like before he's big. Yeah. He's still on the lower levels. Um, He reads the screenplay for The Sting and he is like blown away. Julia invites him to a dinner with Robert Redford. Also, like that's just crazy for him. Robert asks Don how he likes the screenplay and Don replies... It's the perfect American movie, a dick love story. <laughs> because the two stars are Newman and Redford. Yeah. It's like a guy's movie, kind totally. of, uh, for sure. Robert actually tells him a story about how the producer on The Way We Were got a lighting director fired. He didn't want to do it. So he told Barbara Streisand that the way he lit her looked like she had a beard. And she complained, so the guy got fired. Oh, no. I know. That night, Don is really high off this dinner with a huge star. They go back to Julia's room for a nightcap and start making out. Even this is like before Don is a huge pick because he's apprehensive about it because Julia is married, mm-hmm. but they like fool around. They don't fuck. Um, and the next day, Don's no longer shy about sex with Julia. He starts telling Julia about what he likes, bending women over and fucking them in the ass. <laughs> he also tells her that he's really into angry fucking. <laughs> She's like, uh, no thanks. They remain friends, but Julia's like, I'm not into angry fucking. Yeah. So I'm going to pass on that. So the sting money comes in and Julia takes Don out to celebrate. During this dinner, she notices that the mood has changed slightly between them and she feels like she's being observed. She describes it as almost like an all about Eve relationship going forward. Oh no. Like he wants to be a producer. Right. He's seen he's seen what happens and he wants that. With all the money rolling in, Julia decides it's time to have a baby. Her doctor tells her after going off the pill that it will take about a year for her to get pregnant, which will work out great since she has so much work to do with the Sting and Steel Yard Blues. But as luck would have it, she gets pregnant after just one month. She actually flips a coin to decide whether to keep the baby or not. Uh, so she first heads is for the baby, tails is abortion. She keeps getting heads two out of three. And then she's like, well, three out of five, but it keeps coming up heads. So she has the baby. Although initially they're hoping to have David Ward, the writer, direct the sting. There's no way a first-time director is going to happen. And the you know the producers are like, we want Scorsese or Paul Schrader. And 
Julia refers to them, including Spielberg, as a rogues gallery of nerds, <laughs> which I don't know why I find very funny. Um, but the director is the least of their problems at this point. point. So initially they have Dick Zanuck and David Brown. They have a production deal with Universal. They're sort of lined up to be the studio backing the sting. When they reject the idea of David Ward, the Phillipses and Tony Bill, they're like, well, let's see what else is available. They kind of get the blessing from Zanuck and Brown and they start looking for another place. MGM and David Melnick are really interested, but no one at that time wants to work with MGM. MGM ends up offering them so much money, though, that they kind of unofficially agree to let MGM release the picture and and produce the picture. But no one really leaves that meeting feeling good, except for David Melnick. He almost immediately calls Robert Redford in Sundance, then tells Julia that Robert is thrilled to be working with MGM. But soon after, Redford calls Julia furious and saying he's out if MGM is the producer. Zanuck is also feeling rejected, even though he gave them the blessing. He didn't think they would go somewhere else. So he's really upset about it. Zanuck and Brown and Lou Wasserman, who has Universal, are now thinking of suing uh, the producing, like the couple and Tony Bell. And Lou Wasserman even says, I'm going to make sure they never work in this town again. Dick Zanuck, though, is determined to make uh, the deal happen, and all parties meet up to kind of settle things. They have this all-day meeting, and they get George Roy Hill on to direct. They figure out all the points and credits, the fees, etc., and the deal is done. Melnick is desperate at this point to land the film still, and he's like, I'll let David Ward have the director's job if you go with MGM, but it's too late. David's response when someone asked him how he felt about not getting the film was, I don't get mad. I don't. What? <laughs> Why are you laughing? Dick Xanax. I keep saying Dick. Dick Xanax. Z- Did I say Xanax? No, oh. I said, that's how my head feels. Oh my God. I'm so sorry. No, I want that pill. <laughs> For, for when your dick is too stressed. Your dick is stressed. Maybe it needs a little Xanax. It's not ED. Your it's dick's stressed. stressed. I bet you that's a thing. I'm so sorry, Dad. It's fine. I was like, what did I do? No, you did do uh, So at this point, the Phillipses and Tony Bill have pissed off MGM and the company that they went with. Universal hates them too. Production starts and um, they also land a key role, an actor for the another key role, Robert Shaw, who we all know played Quentin Jaws, one of the greatest performances of all time, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. So The Sting. If you don't know this movie, it is a 1973 movie. It's set in 1936. It's a caper film. It has a plot about two grifters played by Paul Newman and Robert Redford, and they're conning a mob boss played by Robert Shaw. It's also very famous because it has da 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 the entertainer. Oh, that's not how it goes. Da 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 that's what I'm doing. <laughs> Someone's gonna. This is gonna sound so stupid to everyone listening. We all know what the entertainer is. <laughs> that's literally what I just did. 
Hers was slightly. Oh my god. Okay, do you know that I used to be able to play that on the piano, the full song? Really? I but everyone kind of knows how to play no, that no, one. No, 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 no. I learned the full song when I was a kid because I did take piano lessons as a child. And that is like one of my greatest regrets is that I just stop taking piano lessons because yeah. like I would sit down and bang that fucking song out. And then the da 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 <laughs> That's a lot of parts. <laughs> Everybody loves that song. Well the funny thing is I think that's all I knew about the sting was that song and it was like I was like I'm not watching that oldie time movie. <laughs> it seemed real you know like there's a lot of movies from the seventies that are like real oldie timey settings. Yes. Yeah. Anyway. I, I have never seen it. But maybe I'll watch it because I didn't know Robert Shaw was in it. So they add, um, so they start pissing off Tony Bill as well. They, in in sort of defense of um, David Ward, the writer, they're like, he should get more money too. We got more money, and which is a nice thing. But Tony Bill did not want to give the writer more money. They were like, whoop, we paid him his fee. He doesn't get more. <laughs> That's it. And then they also, at this point, they're splitting things 50-50 between the couple and Tony Bell. And they're like, going forward, we want to do thirds. Yeah. Which makes sense. Midway through the filming, they dissolve their partnership (laughs) because of these squabbles. Once the film is complete, um, they go on to like creating a marketing plan. And this is a very interesting period in movies. Um, Things are really in this like wild flux, like Jaws has a summer blockbuster. So there's like this new way of marketing these blockbusters. There's also movies like The Godfather and Love Story that proved the value of doing a limited release and getting audience reaction to then build on and create like this huge buzz and have a longer lasting box office draw. So they kind of wanted something like that, but the executives were like, this movie is not going to be a big hit. Yeah. They didn't want to go all out on it. But Julia was convinced it was going to be critically and commercially successful. She considered this another example of how small-minded um, executives were. And in her heart, she's like, I'm going to dream big. And I think this movie is going to be a huge uh, success. Now, she's pregnant during a lot of this. And she's really starting to feel excluded. A lot of people are treating her like not as much involved because they're like, oh, she's having a baby. So she's planning on leaving the business to become a mom. This obviously infuriates her and gives her even more drive to succeed making more great films after the sting. After having her daughter, Kate, Julia is reading The New Yorker and comes across a book review that piques her interest. It's called Fear of Flying by Erica Jong. She gets a copy of the book and immediately wants to meet Erica. This book is already getting a lot of attention, so she acts fast to kind of nail down the option for this book and will go on trying to produce it. She also gets her former boss, David Beagleman, now at Columbia, on board with another project she has in the works with Steven Spielberg. She pitches it to him as being about UFOs and Watergate. <gasps> and she lies her way through the meeting saying they have this whole script and da-da-da-da-da, but nothing has been finalized. She kind of lies, gets Beagleman on board, And she's like, we'll get it together. I just know we will. This movie will be uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So she speaks of the irony irony that uh, her and Michael are considered the linchpins of of making this deal because they're connecting all the people together to get Close Encounters made. When the reality is Steven Spielberg is clearly the most important (laughs) part, but it's just not seen that way at the time. They closed the deal with Beagleman, agreeing to a $2.8 million budget. Um, 
And she's like, yeah, you say anything to close the deal. This movie will obviously go over budget. So The Sting is released on Christmas Day 1973 to critical and box office success. But what should be the best time of her life is feeling very hollow. Julia wants out of her marriage. Michael senses it. And he describes Julia as a balloon with him as the knot. And if the knot is gone, the balloon will just go around the room, finally collapsing on the floor. Julia agrees, but not in the same way Michael says. She says, yes, Michael is the knot, and it's so tight that I feel like I can't breathe. In February of 1974, The Sting is nominated for 10 Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Its biggest competition is The Exorcist. Obviously, Julia and the other producers are super stressed because this Exorcist is a huge fucking phenomenon and hit. The Sting is more like an old school type deal. Um, So she just, in in order to leave her anxiety, she starts focusing on what she's going to wear. And she gets a companion to help her do this. Uh, He was a fashion consultant on the film. Joel Schumacher. No way. He was in... He was like in fashion and and like costuming before he started directing, right? I mean, obviously a little bit. That makes sense because of the Batman movies. <laughs> yes. Because the costumes in Batman Forever and Batman and Robin are so good. Yeah, I think it's because that's his background. Yeah. So I feel like maybe I knew that. I do too, but I can't remember yeah. what other things he did. So he picks out a black Halston slip dress for her, um, like a long strand of pearls and a double feather boa. So that's it's like cute. A, it's a cute look. On April 2nd, the day of the awards, Julia wakes up at 6.30 a.m. and begins her Oscar day. Once her kid is out of the house with the nanny, she gets her secret stash of Coke the good stuff she says that she hides from Michael. She says it falls apart like butter when she cuts it. And uh, after snorting some of that, she rolls a joint and smokes that. Soon after, she notices her hands are shaking, so she pops half a Valium. While doing her hair, she pops three more halves of (laughs) Valium and does more cocaine, making sure not to tell Michael since she doesn't want to fight on her big night. So... The limo picks them up in Malibu. Universal has agreed to provide it um, to the producers. And they're really, they really feel like the evil stepchildren at Universal now um, because Universal has another movie up for Best Picture, and that is American Graffiti. Now, George Lucas directed that. He's obviously part of this hip, young, new Hollywood uh, directors that are kind of on the rise in the 70s. Uh, and she says that... So the note that they sent them when they got congratulated for the best pick nom said, sincerest congratulations and best wishes from us at Universal for 10 Academy Award nominations, including best picture for The Sting, Lou R. Wasserman. The one that the American Graffiti people got was, congratulations for the Academy Award nomination for American Graffiti. The film in our judgment is an American classic and deserving of all its accolades. Let's hope there are more adventures that we can share with you in the future. Wow. (laughs) So quite a stark difference uh, between the two um, notes. So yeah, they're in this limo. She pops more volume in the limo. Um, she regrets not bringing her stash. She did forget that, unfortunately. And she's like with a line of limos outside of, this is when it was at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, which is downtown. It's just this massive line of limos. So they're all in this fucking limo 
<laughs> and they're like sweaty and like stressed and it's really uncomfortable. She's also super fucked up on multiple things. She's feeling stuffy. She says she uh, gets out to walk the red carpet. She's like thrilled. She's in her Halston gown, but she's ignored. And she's like, oh, she's like a year ago, I would have been thrilled if you told me I was at the Oscars. But now I realize the only way to truly experience it is if you're a movie star. Everyone else is just pushed down like a nothing. So she sits down for what she describes as the longest hours of her life, only made bearable by her perfect Oscar cocktail that she will use in the future, a diet pill, um, cocaine, two joints, six half valiums, and a glass and a half of wine. The sting starts picking up words immediately. They get music, they get screenplay. She actually has to go pee. She knows she has a lot of time before her, you know, the best picture is up. And while she's leaving the bathroom, she runs into a a drunk Jack Lemmon who is actually being held up by the bar. (laughs) He's nominated, by the way. (laughs) So she kind of hangs out with him. They walk back into the auditorium or whatever together as his category is about to come up. And minutes later, he beats Robert Redford from The Sting for Best Actor. She admits being... Glad Redford didn't win the award because she was petty. He didn't ask her to accept it for him. (laughs) I get it. Um, George Roy Hill wins Best Director, and Julia notices that William Friedkin's face is twisted with hate. (laughs) He directed The Exorcist, which didn't win. Elizabeth Taylor then comes on to present Best Picture. Okay, so she is introduced by uh, David Niven. This is an infamous Oscar moment. While she and David are on stage, a streaker crosses the Oscar stage right. and gives the peace sign as he's running across. <laughs> um, David Niven famously quips, isn't it fascinating to think that probably the only laugh that man will ever get in his life is by stripping off and showing his shortcomings? <laughs> it goes over really well. This Oscar's actually had a lot of um, famous moments. Um, Debbie Reynolds, Elizabeth Taylor, and Connie Stevens were all there, and they're all ex-wives of Eddie Fisher. So yeah. That must have been awkward. Um, Tatum O'Neill won. She was the youngest Oscar winner ever. She won for Best Supporting Actress in Paper Moon. She was uh, 10 years, 148 days. And uh, Julia, we're about to get to her. She becomes the first female producer to win for Best Picture. Really? No one had won up until that point. A woman hadn't won up until that point. So, uh, you know, Elizabeth Taylor announces that they're win. She, they, the Sting wins the best picture. She says she's so happy about it. She liked the Sting. She didn't like the Exorcist. Michael Phillips, Tony Bill, and Julia go up to accept. Julia's pearls catch on the seat as she's getting up. She has <gasps> one of those long Louise Brooks strand of pearls. She gets untangled by Michael, which is awkward because they're in a bad relationship now. <laughs> the guys give kind of boring speeches and Julia's holding the award the whole time. When it's her turn, she says, you can't imagine what a trip it is for a nice Jewish girl from Great Neck to win an Academy Award and meet Elizabeth Taylor all on the same night. The audience loves it. They're all laughing. They're Aww. they're charmed by Julia. She is soon crushed into Liz Taylor's bosom. Oh, the dream. <laughs> the dream. The rest of the evening is a blur, and Julia feels almost cheated. Like, it went so fast, and she kind of wanted to go back and have the moment again. But she says, life's a trip, and then you get there. Um, so after the Oscars, they go to a wild after party, 
Um, and she goes upstairs to her room and she finds Paul Schrader and Don Simpson doing coke. So she does coke with them. Downstairs, she sees um, John Gregory Dunn and Joan Didion, who she's friends with. She's so close to them. In fact, she's been into their um, bathroom and looked into their medicine cabinet. Ooh, what they got in there? They got everything. She said they have every upper, downer, and in-betweener that's popular in 1973. <laughs> <laughs> so she, um, her and Michael decide to leave the party, but she's like, I'm going to hit the room with Don and Paul before... And they're still sitting exactly where they were when she left them. (laughs) They haven't gone anywhere. Her and Michael head home. And the next morning, they wake up to calls from their parents, etc. And they notice neighbor Peter Boyle walking up their driveway. He warns them that they are about to lose a lot of friends, adding that people like you best when you're struggling. The only thing they like more is when you're on the way down and you have nowhere else to go now. Damn. (laughs) I know. Michael and Julia's relationship continue to deteriorate, deteriorate, and they officially separate on July 29th, 1974, two days before their eighth wedding anniversary. Making things even harder, Julia's good friend Cass Elliott dies the same day. <gasps> so this is like a very difficult day. And Peter's words haunt her now. He, she repeats to herself, everything that rises must break up. And That's what we're going to get into next episode. We'll get more into Julia's spiral into addiction. She loves freebasing. The filming of Close Encounters, which is a huge disaster for Julia. She openly is feuding with um, Francois Francois Truffaut during Mm. the film, and he's in the film and also a producer. And the 80s, where she eventually burns all bridges left. (laughs) And then 91, where she publishes the book... uh, You'll never eat lunch in this town again, which actually is true. She gets banned from Morton's <gasps> after this. <laughs> so at least at one place, she's not eating lunch yeah. anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's episode one. Wow. I can't uh, wait for part two. Yeah. Okay, we'll see you all next week. Yeah. And we have a very special mini episode coming this week as well. Absolutely. And we'll post some good pics yes. from this as well. Absolutely. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.